listeners, this is Neil Ludevi and Amir Jandali. Welcome to Leave Looking Up, where we have uplifting conversations about the state of the world with our heroes, with the intention to demystify, orient, and leave you, our listeners, inspired. For this episode, we sat down with Rana Abdelhamid, a truly inspirational organizer and global human rights activist making positive change in the world today. Rana is a Truman Scholar, founder of the organizations Hijabis of New York and the Women's Initiative for Self-Empowerment, which she started when she was 16. She's also a first-degree black belt and is one of the youngest-serving board members of Amnesty International USA. Rana's list of honors is a true testament to who she is. She's been selected by Forbes as a 30 under 30 in the social impact category, has received both a New York City Council proclamation and an International Youth Advocate Award by the United Nations, and has been recognized by countless other organizations for the social impact of her work. Now, today's episode is a special one. We had the opportunity to sit down with Rana both before and after her 2022 run as a candidate for the United States Congress to represent the 12th district in New York. In these conversations, we explore how we can channel our emotions into action, how our identities inform our decision-making process, and how we can all get involved in the political processes that affect our lives both locally and nationally. And now, without further ado, let's start this episode. We hope you enjoyed as much as we did and leave afterwards looking up. We're here welcoming Rana Abdelhamid, who is a new friend, a new comrade, and running for New York Congress. Uh, I think the only word I have right now, Rana, is a little bit awe. First of all, hi, Rana. Welcome. Thank you so much for that warm welcome. Rana, how are you doing? How's your day? What's on your radar right now? Let's start there and then we'll dive into the stories. Well, yeah, it's a beautiful day. I've been out and about the city today and I have just been meeting a ton of people across New York City, across the district. And the race has taken me to really be connected with people I never thought I'd be connected with, fighting for this vision for a better New York. Rana has been working towards that vision her whole life. But the idea to run for Congress bubbled up to the surface during the COVID pandemic which highlighted the systemic issues that Rana and her neighborhood of Queens were up against. If New York City is the epicenter of the coronavirus epidemic in the country, then Elmhurst Hospital is ground zero. 13 people recently died here in just a 24-hour span. Each day, patients, many with cold and flu-like symptoms, line up outside to be tested. Located in Queens, this borough accounts for nearly a third of all COVID-19 cases in the city. So many things were going on, both like in my neighborhood, within my family, where I was just so frustrated by the reality of lack of proper healthcare infrastructure, lack of proper economic infrastructure to support working communities, especially in a place like Queens, where we were just hearing sirens all the time. The, our hospitals were completely overwhelmed. It was in those moments at the same time that Something so beautiful continued to happen in communities across New York City. Like the days my mom was sick, she had COVID, where my family was isolating, we were taking care of my mom. People were dropping off groceries to our home because they knew we couldn't go out to get groceries. Like that was the kind of care that existed during that time. And people don't think of New York that way. We built these mutual aid networks. We built these community fridges. We did like support for small businesses, wraparound services for folks who are experiencing housing insecurity. And it was in those moments 
that like the idea we need institutional change began to really form for me and also being called on to be that change kept happening. So I came to this race through an organization called Justice Democrats. And this is the organization that also recruited and ran people like AOC and Dr. Bowman and Cori Bush, and Ilhan Omar, people who are really leading the progressive movement within the congressional space. It was through someone who works within Justice Democrats that approached me and was like, have you thought about running for office? But it honestly wasn't until I had the institutional support from an organization where I was like, all right, this is happening. It's like, if I get their endorsement, it's like a dream. And so like, I can't walk away from that. In April of 2021, thanks to the support of Justice Democrats and her community, Rana formally launched her congressional campaign to represent New York's 12th district, which at the time included parts of Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Queens. Her primary opponent was Carolyn Maloney, an established Democrat who had represented the 12th district for nearly three decades. The New York Times called the race a generational, ideological, and insider versus outsider battle that will test the power and energy of the left. I've been involved in community organizing, and I've been adjacent to and in the political world from a movement perspective for as long as I can remember, so since I was 14. Did I ever imagine that I would be running for Congress at 28? Absolutely not. I don't know who, like, it's a, you, you never really imagine that. And especially me growing up in all the identities that I carry as a Muslim woman, as a woman of color, as a hijab wearing, growing up working class. Like, I never imagined someone who looks like me being in Congress, and I never imagined than myself being in Congress. And so a lot of, I think, shifts in my own assumptions of what I'm able to do as well. You started laying down the groundwork about the fact that you've been involved in, in creating movements since you were a teen. So tell us more about that. Tell us more about the soil that started churning and forming from those early years. Yeah, I think to understand how I came to organizing, it's important to understand like, when I talk about Queens, what Queens I'm talking about. If you grew up in Queens, you definitely get this. Queens is a type of place where we have these like ethnic immigrant hubs where it's so diverse. We have over 800 languages that are spoken here. We're the working class neighborhoods of New York City. And I grew up in a neighborhood where literally you walk down the street and it's the aunties and the uncles and you smell falafel and there's Quran blasting out of the mosque and also Amr Dieb's cassette player, you know, is like singing and like everybody's kind of hustling and bustling and it, it's really important that folks are super interconnected because like when my mom needs to pick up extra shift to make some extra cash, I can go to my neighbor's house or I could be at the mosque. And it was kind of the shared mutual aid structure that really allowed us to survive and allowed all of us to get through like economic hardship. And so I grew up on mutual aid. I grew up on like immigrant hustle. I grew up like in a moment where if you needed something, people would kind of have your back. And within the context where like everyone had a lot of pride in their identity, right? Like I spoke Arabic at home. My mom wore Abeya walking down the streets of New York City. That's what was up. My inflection point in organizing really happened the intersection of both class and growing up post 9-11 in New York. In the weeks following 9-11, when Rana was nine years old, her representative, Carolyn Maloney, protested the treatment of women in Afghanistan by wearing a burqa on the House floor. During her campaign, Rana criticized Maloney's decision, saying that after seeing this, quote, for the rest of my life, 
I knew that as a Muslim woman, my identity would be weaponized to justify American wars. It was during a time in which all of a sudden I could pass as Latina in school and now everyone's like, oh, she's Arab and she's Muslim. Those are used as bad words, right? Like not in a way that's positive. And I came to organizing from a place of frustration with the way the world was perceiving me and my community. And so as a high school student, it was like during the time all the stuff was happening post 9-11. My community was being over-policed. There was surveillance in my neighborhood and stop and frisk. And at the same time, like New York City public schools were being shut down because they weren't performing at the rate that the government was setting. And like my neighborhood was being gentrified. And so it was like marching wherever I can, doing these flash mobs and doing advocacy and petitioning. And that was how I came to it was just like in the streets, literally at protests. My friends and I would be like, there's a protest on this. There's this walkout. There's this. And we would just show up. I'm wondering if you remember what that first protest was like. Oh my God, I don't even remember. I don't, I honestly don't remember. But I do know that so much of what I do now and so much of my values and my understanding around organizing and movement work comes from my years in high school, which is like so wild think about that that was like such a formative time like the organizations that I was involved with are organizations I'm still involved with the people who are literally helping me build this campaign are people I've been organizing with since high school we used to literally wear orange jumpsuits and like go to Central Park and hand out flyers to like educate people about Guantanamo. We used to like pretend we were pregnant to like put like balloons in our stomach, like a people to be aware about the Maternal Health Accountability Act. This was what we would do. Did you think that at that time going out was gonna make this kind of change and impact that would lead you to this path or it was reactionary at that point? Yeah, I think it was reactive in the sense that a huge part of my upbringing as I was growing up, I had a lot of shame around my identity. Like I was just like, I don't want people to know I'm like Arab. I don't want people to know I'm Muslim. I didn't find pride in that, right? And then I remember being surrounded by dope Muslims, dope Arabs who were older than me, who were in activism and like reading Malcolm X was like a really big turning point. And so when I say reactive, it was like, I know I'm going to be proud. Like I'm going to wear the hijab. Like I'm going to be out here. I'm going to speak against injustice. It's not fair that my community is experiencing this. It's not fair that there is inequality. It's not fair that our schools are being shut down. It's not fair that I'm growing up in a neighborhood literally nicknamed Asma Ali, right? It was this kind of frustration with the reality and feeling for so long like I had no power. And then finally coming to terms with, I do have power. And I can use that to create change. And I know that because people have come before me and they have used their power to create change. In 2010, Rana started the Women's Initiative for Self-Empowerment to teach Muslim women self-defense, which she mentioned in her campaign launch video. I was 16 years old when a man grabbed my hijab in broad daylight and tried to rip it from my head. I started a nonprofit to train women in self-defense and organize against hate-based violence, collectively stepping into our power to feel safe in our communities. The organization, now known as Malika, is active internationally and supports black and brown women in building power within themselves and their communities. Starting Malika was the manifestation of Rana's acknowledgement that she can make a difference and make change. Since starting Malika, They've trained over 20,000 women and girls 
in 20 cities across the globe with over 800 workshops and 200 global, national, and grassroots partners. What brings you from that frustrated space to that change-making space? That was a really long journey. I think that was a really long journey. I think there was a moment, it was probably in end of college, where I was like, I'm not going to be angry anymore. Like, it took me a while <laughs> to be like, I'm not going to be angry anymore. Like, because I realized that anger is really important, right? It's important to feel anger because oftentimes anger can be used to channel action, right? It allows you to feel injustice and oppression in a way that moves beyond being passive or taking it, right? Letting yourself take it, which is the phase that I was in. But I got to a point where I was like, I need to be proactive and reframe for what I'm creating, not what I'm fighting against, but what am I for? What is the world that I want to build? I think what was really important for me was to recognize and love my own community and recognize and love the people who represent the values who came before me and created change and recognize that I'm not alone in this fight and people are fighting to make the world a better place. And that's beautiful. That's really hopeful for me. While Rana's love for her community has fueled so much of the work she's done, it has also been a source of conflict. Like when she shared her aspirations with her imam, which is a spiritual leader within a Muslim community. Yeah, so actually growing up a nerd in a working class immigrant community, I didn't have many options for what path I was going to take. And I remember right before I went away to college, which was a big deal too, because I went away from my neighborhood. And that was a whole thing. Like I grew up in a conservative Muslim community for me to be a woman leaving my family's home pre-marriage to dorm was like a huge thing. And I remember before I left, my imam, who's amazing and incredible, who's maybe like 70, just I learned so much from him, sat me down and was like, what are you going to study? And I was like, I'm going to study political science. And he was like, absolutely not. And he went off about how like political space is not built for anyone who looks like us. This is what he said. It's going to be difficult. You're going to be pushed out. You're going to have to compromise on too many of your values. All these things, right? The political class is all about corruption and like all this stuff. And I remember leaving that and crying, like literally sobbing. I was like, my dream, like 18 year old Rana, just like, oh, it's over. Like I can never go into politics. It's done like here. And I, and yes, absolutely. Like then I went off and studied pre-med for a long time until I failed miserably. And I was doing all this work on the side. Like people were like, what are you doing? Like, why are you living this double life? Like you hate biology. You hate science. And I'm like, because I have to fulfill the immigrant dream. Like this is the only way, you know, like this was kind of the, the path. I never stopped organizing. I always saw it as my life, not my career, you know? not my profession, not what I'm going to do as a job. This was where I was at. I was pre-med. There's a scholarship called the Truman Scholarship. And it's kind of like the Rhodes Scholarship. It's for public service. It's a really important validator. Like if you get it, it's like a big deal within the public service realm. And so I told my parents, the deal with my parents was like, if I get the Truman Scholarship, I'm going to switch my major. And mind you, like to get the scholarship is very competitive. So I was like, if I can make it through this, if this organization validates me, then I'll feel like I am enough to be able to really pursue this public service space. And I went through the process and I got the scholarship. And that's when I was like, all right, so there's hope for me to actually be within the public service space. That was that. And then I officially changed my major. I feel like many people have faced this, this conflict 
that exists with having to have external validation to merit whether or not you can go forward in a path. But also, you have a very clear North Star. You know your mission. You know your trajectory. Talk to us about that. Yeah, it takes a lot of faith. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of reflection. And mind you, at this point, you know, I've founded a nonprofit organization. I'm like doing self-defense classes across the globe. I'm literally teaching confidence building and organizing training workshops and leading Amnesty International in the state, all the stuff. And still, I think the important part was always, how do I make sure that I'm rooting myself in the right things and my attention is focused and oriented around like how I can maximize my impact. So even when I was like in pre-med, I was like, I'm going to be an OBGYN and do maternal health, right? And it really wasn't a shift in like my mission or vision. I always wanted to do work, have impact on community and come back to my neighborhood and all this. It was just a tool. What is my tool that I'm going to be using to actually have that impact? And I think that's a journey for everyone. After the break, Rana's journey continues as she breaks down the complexities of political representation and the impact of gentrification both of which would contribute to the unexpected end of her campaign. Our guest Rana Abdelhamid was running to represent New York's 12th district, and we return here to her reflecting on this journey. Despite organizing community her whole life, Rana understood the challenges that many face when trying to get involved with politics. I'm from New Mexico. You know, I was born and raised in a small town in southern New Mexico, population 70,000, 80,000 people. I never really had a sense of what my role is. In I, I, I couldn't even tell you who are my district representatives or when are the city council meetings or like this whole sphere is just kind of mystified for me. But I am somebody that cares about social environmental change. I want to understand the political landscape. Who are the players? Who are the stakeholders? What does that look like? You're not the only one, by the way. A majority of people are not engaged. The majority of people are not necessarily out there aware, voting, right? Even though there's such a robust political infrastructure in New York City. So for example, with the license for the Pico plant, the NRG plant here in Astoria, the community board and community organizations, the city council, state level representatives were a huge part of making sure that they didn't get their license renewed so that we were forced to find a renewable option rather than having to rely on fossil fuel plants to get our energy sources. I believe it's done on purpose and make it more difficult for people to have access and to understand their true representation. And the reason is because there's so much money tied into politics, so much corporate interest, so much funding and investment comes from real estate and from these fossil fuel companies and that it's within their benefit that people are not engaged with their political process. And the other thing is because we haven't had the kind of representation like an AOC, right? Like you, you will know, most people will know who AOC is, right? But if I say Carolyn Maloney's name, most people don't know who that is, even people within the district. And it's because they don't see themselves in that kind of representation. If you have a hip Arab Muslim woman, right, representative in New York, I will promise you, you will know who that is, right? Like, and I'm pretty sure most people who share parts of my identity know who I am in the city, and I'm not even in that seat yet. And that is why representation matters so much. I remember a couple of years ago, I was speaking with like the first Korean American elected in New York, and they're in Queens. People call from the Bronx who are Korean American for help on stuff because they feel seen in that representation. There's many reasons why someone like you, who's highly engaged, 
who's super educated, right? Who's entrepreneurial and young and tapped into so many social spaces in New York City would be not involved with such an obvious social space or political space to get connected to on issues that you care about. There's just too many barriers. So I'm a person, I'm in this apartment building, I'm in Crown Heights. What's the big next sphere of representation? Can you just demystify that? What are the systems that I'm nested in? You have the most dope city council member, okay. Crystal Hudson, Crown Heights. You should look her up. She's amazing. So is Crystal, is she the next one up from, from an individual? There's you as an individual. Then there's the Democratic Party in New York, which has most power because it's a very democratic state, democratic city, New York City. You have a district leader. Okay. You have state committee leaders who are representative, who engage with the Democratic Party at a county level in Brooklyn. You have your city council member. You have your state assembly member. You have your state senator. You have your borough president. (laughs) And then I would say maybe like comptroller. You have your mayor. You have your congressional member. These are kind of the layers of representation. So for folks that want to get more engaged and learn more. I mean, I remember the process when I had to do this for Harlem Arts Festival, talking to the borough president, but I had a lot of people clinging, oh, you should talk to this person, talk to this person. Like, what is the next step for the average human that's like, I care about things? <laughs> and what do I do with all these cares? I'm not a person who thinks that electoral politics is the only way. I think electoral politics is part of it, right? And I think if someone's interested in getting involved in electoral politics, there are a lot of democratic clubs across the city as well that are easy ways for people to plug in. And I will tell you that Democratic clubs across New York City, I hope no one gets offended that I'm about to say this, are in dire need of younger, more diverse presence and voices. There's the community board. Anyone could apply to be on their community board. You could go to your community board meetings. Those happen regularly and you could learn about the issues happening in your local community. And then city council, you definitely follow your city council member. You can follow them on Instagram or Twitter, follow your state senator, follow your state assembly person. They usually host events at their offices about things that are going on. There's a process called participatory budgeting, where literally city council members are giving out a million dollars to community initiatives. It's a really great way to get involved. And the other thing I'll say selfishly, too, is getting involved on campaigns. There's a candidate that you are excited by, that you would like to see represent your community. That's a really great way to build networks, learn, cut your teeth in the political process and build community. Hell yeah. This is great. So can you keep opening us up to a little bit about the vocabulary here? You know, what are some concepts, some language that people need to know and people need to understand in order to measure success and measure change and improvements? I care a lot about housing justice because I believe that New York City is an amazing place And it is a very expensive place and very inaccessible space for so many people. And as someone who grew up and experienced gentrification, and I care a lot about affordable housing. Okay. So there is a metric, if you want to learn a metric of the day, called average median income. Okay. This is a metric that developers use and community board uses and city council member might, borough presidents might use to think about what actual affordability can look like in a community. The problem with this metric is it uses median income, which when you look at an average, oftentimes if there's higher numbers than an average, it will skew that number higher than it should be. This stat is not hyper-localized. So for example, a place like Queens, 
our income is calculated with a place like Westchester, which we know a county in Westchester has much higher incomes than a place in Queens. This is how you get an apartment that is affordable in a place like Long Island City. That's a one bedroom. That's $2,750, right? So you're like, how is a one bedroom affordable if it's $2,750? And the developer made an agreement with the city getting some sort of tax break that he's building or she's building affordable units, but the units are not actually affordable, right? They're like, we're going to keep it at X percent AMI. The building ends up being way more expensive than it should be. That is a metric that could be changed at a federal level. It would have huge implications for how we do urban development and urban planning. That's my fun fact. I read in an article that you were talking about basically the, the connection with the climate crisis and a housing crisis. And I'd love you to dive a little bit more into that, about how they're connected and why housing is such a fundamental thing. Yeah, this is all interconnected. And when I talk about housing justice, it's also racial justice. It's also gender justice. It's climate justice. I grew up in a neighborhood literally nicknamed Asma Ali. Oftentimes, housing and the way urban planning happened historically in New York City, you have working class immigrant neighborhoods relegated to parts of the city where we're more vulnerable to toxicity, toxic air. For me, there are two examples that we could think of that are really heartbreaking of how climate justice is interconnected with housing justice. Deadly flooding cripples the tri-state. More than 20 lives have been lost. Entire neighborhoods underwater, roads impassable, the subway shut down. Hurricane Ida, we saw people literally die in their basement apartments in Queens, over a dozen people, because there was so much flooding that happened. The climate resilient infrastructure wasn't there. So we haven't invested in making sure that homes are safe from flooding, one. And two, people are people can't afford to live and have to find these alternative forms of housing. So they live in basement apartments, which I partially grew up in a basement apartment, right? And these basement apartments are not equipped to deal with the climate crisis. And so people literally, you know, were stuck in their homes when they flooded and passed away because of that. This is a horrific, horrific, painful moment for the city of New York. Catastrophe in the Bronx, the deadliest fire in 30 years, tears through an apartment building, killing at least 19 people, nine of those victims, children. Then you also saw the Bronx fire. Again, our buildings are not equipped to deal with these extreme weathers, the extreme cold, people didn't have heat in their home, and we're bringing space heaters into their home as the only alternative in the middle of a New York City winter. And that's how you had a fire happen in this Bronx building in a low-income neighborhood in the Bronx. And so when I talk about climate justice as housing justice, that looks like retrofitting all of our buildings. It looks like making sure that we're investing in renewable energy sources so we're not reliant on fossil fuels um, to heat our homes, right? But it also means that when there is a hurricane, like Hurricane Ida, that people don't have to have mold in their home for five years because they're not receiving the federal funding to get that mold removed, which is literally what ha has happened in this district. So where I lived in New York City more than 10 years was in Harlem, where a tremendous amount of displacement and shift and, and gentrification was happening. And you've alluded to so much about how rich Queens is in terms of its culture and its vibe. I'm just curious, how do you see that connecting with, with these other important passions of yours? And all of that is in many ways interconnected. When people talk about gentrification, there's beautiful writing about like the 
the loss, right? And the ongoing grieving and mourning and when a community is displaced and someone walking through their neighborhood and seeing it change day by day and almost feeling a part of them is being lost. I really resonate with that because that is the reality of me still living in Astoria, having grown up here and seeing so many small businesses shut down, seeing so many other institutions come up, seeing luxury high-rise developments go up. When people used to live there and now they live you know, in Texas because they can't afford to live in New York anymore. That is the ongoing grieving process, the way in which we make sure that communities and their histories are preserved is by making sure that we are allowing for institutions like commercial real estate, right? And then small businesses, which are oftentimes the crux of these communities, community organizations and cultural institutions, actual people's homes and residences, right? Are people actually able to stay if they want to stay? And that requires things like national rent control for both commercial and residential rent. That requires things like actually recognizing the history, right, of a community and honoring that the presence of that community through celebration, through amplification. And there's so much organizing happening across this district that is rooted in those kinds of efforts to memorialize and to recognize and to sustain that cultural resilience when it's being confronted with so much economic shifts because it happens so quickly and you need like both community protectors and you need policy to intervene in the face of such incredible amounts of money that is flooding these neighborhoods. What none of us could have known is that soon after our original interview, Rana's campaign would be directly confronted by the very issues of gentrification that have been affecting her community her whole life through a process called redistricting. Now to the political chaos in New York State and the stunning decision redrawing the maps of congressional districts that's set off a fierce scramble for seats. A number of representatives found they no longer live in their districts and others will have to run against each other. The process of redrawing congressional maps is known as redistricting, and it took place across the country after the 2020 census, as it does every 10 years, to adjust for population and political changes within states. In New York... These newly redrawn maps meant that Queens, Rana's home, would no longer be included in the 12th district, the very district she was running to represent. As a result, Rana was forced to drop out of the race. We sat down with Rana for a second interview, her first time speaking about her decision after her official statement in December 2022, seven months after her campaign ended. I was redistricted out of the location in which I was trying to represent, I got redistricted into Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's congressional district. My district was kind of pushed all the way into Manhattan, which is not where I live. And so abruptly had to jump out of that race after two years of running. (laughs) It was Definitely one of the hardest experiences of my life in so many ways. I came into this really from a place of love for community, for my family, for my neighborhood, and also from a place of anger, I think, just lack of representation and lack of listening and investment in housing and in just 
the real challenges, whether it's food insecurity or climate injustice, gender injustice that I saw so many folks in my own neighborhood deal with, but being ignored and left out by political representation. And then I felt like the culmination of the race also, the redistricting process, which did not take into account the neighborhood that I was running to represent and in many ways erase the North African community, which gerrymandering oftentimes does. It erases minoritized groups. It felt kind of like the reason why I jumped in was also confirmed, right? The reason that forced kind of this race to end. So it, it was definitely hard. It was through conversations with her family and campaign supporters, in addition to prayer and meditation, that Rana knew suspending her campaign was the right next step. However, her community has had to wrestle with this decision in their own way. There's a ton of people who didn't believe, who were kind of like, we don't want to vote, we don't want to do this, we don't want to get involved, and who were door knocking for the first time, who donated to a political campaign for the first time, who were like, we're going to vote for the first time, right? And when I walked down Steinway Street, some people redirected their anger towards me. My own... Like people who are like my ride or die, right? Who really gave so much. And I understand they gave so much to this campaign. And it was such a letdown. And for me to withdraw without the nuanced political context of why I would withdraw, for them, it almost felt like I gave up is how they read it. And, and there were moments when I even internalized that and am constantly going back and forth. Maybe I could have done this or I could have done that. But... It's even just set, sitting with that decision, not just alone, but in community and in collective, creates, you feel the frustration, right? And you don't know who to direct it at. And it's very, it's very much a mess. But I, I do think that there is important space for that to be held and for that to be processed as well. And we have been processing it collectively. It's important to go a little bit easy on ourselves and find ways to take care of ourselves, especially in these moments. And I'm, I guess I'm curious, like, how are you taking care of yourself right now? One of the reasons why I ran for office is the reality of gentrification and displacement that I am seeing in my neighborhood here in Astoria. People talk about Astoria like is gone. There are no people of color here anymore, that there are no immigrants, that there are no working class people here. And in many ways, the demographics of Astoria have shifted substantially from when I grew up. It's night and day. And we're still here. Like we're trying to survive. And so I'm working on you know, a couple of storytelling and art projects and doing a ton of organizing and teaching self-defense and doing the things that I wasn't able to do that fill my cup and doing it with people who I'm closest to, creating art with women who raised me and like teaching self-defense and doing trauma-informed facilitation, like literally do a trauma-informed training on my aunties. It's like the only time I could sit my aunties down and tell them why they can't just call someone fat. Amazing <laughs> stuff. And I feel really lucky to be able to do it. Now that she's had time and space away from, as she described it, the most difficult experience of her life, Rana has found a way to transform her anger at the systemic injustice of the redistricting process, while still leave looking up. I'm a religious person. I believe God makes things happen for a reason. And 
I, I do believe that this is an opportunity for redirection. And I believe that this was racist gerrymandering. This isn't me applying for a job and not getting the job. This is me and my community investing almost a million dollars, time, energy, having vision, believing in an electoral process that oftentimes marginalized and overlooked us for the first time, and then being completely pushed out of that system and of that process in an unequitable, unjust way, with also being optimistic and recognizing the power of my community and what we built, and knowing that we're going to continue to fight for our needs and continue to build our collective power, even in the face of all that. We're now approaching the end of this episode, and we can't bring it to a close without underscoring the immense gratitude for Rana's vulnerability. Her ability to reframe this incredibly challenging experience into a transformative one has been truly touching and inspirational to us. Thank you, Rana, for modeling how to stay committed to one's mission, regardless of what gets in the way. On top of that, shortly after our first interview, Rana's work was recognized in the prestigious Forbes 30 Under 30 category for social impact, further demonstrating that half the battle is staying true to your path and that recognition and change will come. So as we wrap this episode, we'll leave you listeners with a little more to learn about the human behind the hero. So the rapid fire round, you have five seconds or less to give your gut quick response to it, uh, whatever it might be. There are no wrong answers. There are just quick answers. And that's what we're looking for. On this day of Ramadan, what is your favorite drink? Biscuits. Kerkede. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm going to have to try that. I'm so Egyptian. I can't. <laughs> When are you most productive? In the morning. Who is your biggest inspiration? Ooh, my mom. Either or, summer or winter? <gasps> summer. <laughs> What's your magic number? Oh, wow. I don't know why 13 popped in my head, but I don't, I don't feel some type of way about 13. There you go. It's my magic number. I think I know the answer to this, but in which subject were you worst at in school? <laughs> oh my god what subject was i worst at oh should i say i mean organic chemistry was like my worst life ever in physics I, science science <laughs> i heard you say biology before and i was like mm, it's definitely gonna be science related and so which was your best social studies history what scares you oh my god this is not rapid fire <laughs> what scares me oh my god so much right now <laughs> I think like letting people down scares me. Yeah. I would have said scorpions, but I think that's a really good answer too. <laughs> if you could live anywhere else in the world other than Queens, where would it be? Can I say Manhattan? No. <laughs> outside of New York? Outside of New York? Loyal. Yeah, outside of New York. If I could live anywhere else in the world outside of New York, it would be have to be Alexandria, Egypt. Fantastic response. I love it. Rana, thank you so much for sharing some wisdom and inspirations and motivations here. I'm leaving looking up after this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I'm going to leave looking up too. Thank you both so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you again to Rana Hamid for joining us. If you want to stay inspired, follow Rana on Instagram at Rana Hamid and on Twitter at Rana4NY. That's R-A-N-A-F-O-R-N-Y. Or check out her nonprofit organization, Malika, at malika.org. 
You can listen to and watch the full 40-minute follow-up interview with Rana by joining our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash leave looking up. Here are a few clips from that interview. And this is like probably the first time I'm speaking about it now. Again, outside of the context of it actually happening. But I do think it's important to pause and recognize how systemically this was really violent. And this is really messed up. I have an idea that I want to put out there in the world that I think is too embarrassing for my Instagram. I put it on my TikTok. The only thing that's keeping me going, because this was such a hard experience, it's like so hard to talk about even now. I honestly get so emotional about it, is love. This episode was created through the combined efforts of myself as executive producer and our producer Kyle Getz, engineer Alexander Rossi, with support from Eric Aaron. The Moon 31 team also includes lead producer Lushik Lotus Lee, designer Andrea Kang, Glass Slipper Media, and engineer Justin Jet Carter, who also scored this episode. Original theme music by Brady Watt, and background music provided from Blue Dot Sessions. On our Patreon, you can also find complete, unedited, raw episodes in video form, score merch, be the first to access our content, and support what we're creating. Also, we'd like to take a second to thank you for joining us today. So if you haven't already, please be sure to leave a rating and review of the podcast in your app of choice. We also recommend following us on social media at Leave Looking Up on all social channels or subscribing to our mailing list for special content, news, and first dibs on the episodes via our website at leavelookingup.com. 